Hi, and welcome to Five Compelling Questions with Sean. This is the podcast where we get to know authors through a series of questions, um, mostly about the creative process, but yeah, we always end up veering into weird territory and, you know, personal embarrassing things. No, not really embarrassing, just, you know, personal things. We never, we never embarrass anyone on purpose. We try not to anyway. Um, my guest today, I'm very excited. Um, we've taken a little hiatus. The show's been off for a couple of weeks, but we're back. And I have my first international guest, so, sort of. Well, she's in an international area of the world. <laughs> she's not <laughs> in the United States. So my guest today is Jennifer Berg. Hi, Jen. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And thanks for working out the time difference. I'm terrible with those kinds of things like math and stuff. I'm like, I don't know what time it is even here, much less <laughs> anywhere else. So. Um, I'm just going to do a quick bio for those that, um, so everyone can get to know you. Jennifer Berg is an American mystery writer from the Pacific Northwest. Her Elliott Bay mystery series is set in 1950s Seattle and currently features three books, The Charlatan Murders, The Blue Pearl Murders, and The Hatbox Murders. Uh, the, the Charlatan Murders came out a month ago, about a month ago, six weeks ago, something about like that. Ago. Wonderful book. Love it. Um, she's also the author of, you're welcome. She's also the author of The Jazz Club Mysteries, set in San Diego during the 1940s. And her short story, Schemes in the Dark, was published in California Scheming, Bachelor Con Anthology 2020, which is very cool. She is a member of Socials and Crime, the Crime Writers Association, and Mr. Writers of America, where she served on the board of the Southern California chapter. She earned her BA in history from the University of Washington and spent much of the last 20 years in San Diego. She currently lives in a small town in Bavaria, Germany. So Germany, you're from Germany, you're, you're living in Germany. Yes. How, why are you living in Germany? Um, well, it, it kind of came out a little bit by accident. There was the um, pandemic in 2020 and all of the upheaval and the lockdown. Um, this is to explain why maybe I was a little bit crazy at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, my husband and I had uh, one of our kids was graduated and looking for a job all year. And the other one came home during part of the pandemic. Um, and then both of them, the older one got a job and was heading off to Seattle and the younger one was going back to school January 1st after the Christmas holidays. Um, and they kind of got in the car and they took our dog and they took all of our stuff and they rode up north and my husband and I sat in our home in San Diego, kind of looked at each other and after a few days, things were empty and we said, we've got to shake things up a bit. We have to change. We need to, we debated if we wanted to move houses and my husband kind of knew he was ready for a job change. And um, so uh, we looked at the different opportunities and explored some stuff and something came through. He got a job opportunity here in Munich. So in a moment of craziness, we said yes. And we packed up our home in the middle of the pandemic and we relocated here. So we've been here um we arrived in March and we were in a temporary place well two temporary places living out of suitcases for almost four months until our shipment with our household stuff arrived and now we are living in a small apartment in an old Bavarian farmhouse <laughs> well that is cool and that will that will teach your kids to leave you know guess what you're <laughs> leaving we're going to go even further away so bye <laughs> How did they, how did they react to all of uh, mom and dad just taking off overseas? Um, I, 
I think they were sort of happy. Um, they were relieved. Well, first of all, it gives them a cool new home base to come visit. Mm -hmm. And since they were already used to Southern California, this was something fresh and new. Um, I think also then it helped that they didn't feel responsible for breaking our hearts because they moved away and left us at home. <laughs> so they well, were pretty happy about us having our own adventure. They were off the hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, now you have that to focus on and not so much your, uh, your empty nesting grief exactly grief. yeah i'm not looking forward to to those to those days i have like i have like 10 more years to go so hopefully i heard somewhere it's an actual diagnosis that people can be going through depression I, and i believe it i don't know if that's true or not but it rings true it's it's a big life change and oh, it's very abrupt. for sure yeah i've had i've seen friends of mine that you know had children leave, leave house, you know, just moving on to their, and they, I've noticed my differences in my friends, you know, behaviors and happiness and different things. So it totally is a thing. It's just a major yeah. adjustment. Yeah. It is, it's huge. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, as a mom, especially, you know, you're, you've spent 18 years or more, you know, more these days, it's more like 25, <laughs> getting, them, <laughs> getting them up and out and like efficient, you know, life skills, you know, socialization, and I uh, hoped you set them on their course. And then it's sort of like, that is a gigantic job. And when that's not there, it's like, okay, what do I do? Am I going to go knitting? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. it's a yeah. Lot. So yeah, we'll probably, we'll probably move back someday, but um, we just had to change something. And I just didn't think painting the walls was going to be enough. Wow. Well, that was a, that's a huge change to move to some remote <laughs> place in Germany, <laughs> which is, but it's very cool. I mean, I've, you know, it's awesome. I think it's neat that you, uh, made that change so yeah because somebody I said to uh one of the other my partners at level best I said oh she lives in Germany he's like no she doesn't she lives in California I'm like pretty sure she lives in Germany but <laughs> it's I read yeah. her bio but um, yeah we were confused too so mm -hmm. yeah I think everybody was I yeah we had a couple family it happened so quickly we had some family members who when our kids mentioned it you know they were saying what why didn't anyone tell me you know my husband's sister for example <laughs> It's, you know, a few people accidentally got out of the loop. We just, it happened very quickly. We moved, we packed everything and we were kind of here and landed and, and still kind of piecing together. Wait, did we actually do that? Yeah. It was almost <laughs> like you were fleeing like a crime scene or something. <laughs> I should have made up a better story. I should say that I was, I was fleeing from the scene of a crime. Yeah. That's the crime oh. writer brain of mine. I'm like, oh no, they, they had to go. They had to leave and oh, hide somewhere. I had to clear out in the dark of night. <laughs> Well, I hope you find much happiness there. I was going to ask you, um, what about the crime writing community there? Have you looked into, like, I know CWA is more centered in Europe. Is there like a chapter of, is there a chapter of an MWA there? <laughs> I want to say there is. I did check. There's nothing very close to me. I think Paris was the closest. And obviously in the UK, there's a lot more. There is a separate um, organization here in Germany, but it focuses on crimes written in the German language. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'd love to meet them and get involved with that, but I only write in English. So um, um, yeah, I'll have to kind of find what all is here, but I think England is really gonna be my closest, yeah. my closest connection there for, for my writing. Yeah, or round up a bunch of uh, expats and then start the CWA chapter in Munich. You'd be the president yeah. of it. You just get like four or five other people and then be like, <laughs> okay, we're starting this now. That's what I would do, because I'm crazy. Start my own gang. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we're not, we're not organizing crime. We're organizing crime writers. <laughs> the difference. Right. It's all the same. <laughs> well, I guess we should start with a question since this is what people apparently listen to this 
podcast for. So the first question I have for you, I have so many questions, but here's one for you. That's the official question. If you could tell your younger writing self anything, what would it be? Ooh, I have, I have two things that I would tell my younger writing self. One is very, very useful. And one was because I was pretty um, clueless. Uh, the first thing I would tell my younger writing self is to get to know the business of writing, to really pay attention, to get out there. When I first started writing, and I'm putting that in quotes, um, that was back in 2000, 2001. And I started by writing children's picture books and I'd illustrate them too, because I thought it was really fun. You know, I had little kids, they'd take a nap, they'd go down or preschool, whatever. And it was, it was my hobby that I would make these books. And every year or so I'd kind of send them all off in a flurry um, to some agents. You know, I had the, the marketplace, the big thick book. And, and that was all I knew. I didn't know that illustrators were professional illustrators and were not the same as the writers that often they didn't even meet each other. You know, there were so many things that I just had no idea how anything worked. But I just thought, oh, I've put this together and here I'll do it. And it's not that I wasn't taking, well, true, I wasn't taking it seriously, but I also really underestimated that it was a whole industry and I couldn't just guess how it worked and count on people to be nice and take my hand and, and guide me. <laughs> that I really had to do the hard work. I had to put in the energy and I had to invest and figure out how it worked. So I wrote children's picture books on and off for several years. Nothing ever came of it. When my kids were older, I wrote a middle grade, like a 90,000 word, kind of long for a sixth grader, middle grade book, um, an adventure about a kid in space. And I thought that was all the best thing ever. It was terrible. It was absolutely rotten. I'm afraid I have it still. It pains me to even look at it, but that got shelved. Um, and it wasn't really until I went to my first writer's conference, which I think was in 2014 or 15, that it, it really opened my eyes. And I suddenly saw not even the breadth and depth of what the industry was, but just that it was a massive industry. It wasn't one publisher in one corner of the world doing something and then a couple people in New York doing something. You know, it was a whole industry and there were rules and there were formalities and there was what you know, ways to present yourself professionally, or, you know, just all of these little things that have nothing to do with writing per se. But don't kid yourself, you need to know how it works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was my first kind of awakening of, oh, wait a minute, I thought I was taking this seriously. I wasn't taking it seriously, because seriously means you go and you figure out the whole thing you're dealing with the whole big picture. So um, that would be my first kind of piece of advice to myself. And then um, the second one, and this, this again, is just me being completely clueless. So I started writing um, historical murder mysteries because it's what I love to read. I didn't know they were historical. It didn't occur to me that they were historical until I volunteered and got placed on a panel and they put me with the historical writers and I went to explain to them that I wasn't historical. And they said, well, your book is, it, this, my first book was published in 2017 by another publisher. Um, and I said, well, it was written in the 1950s. <laughs> they said, well, that's historical. So um, the other thing was, <laughs> when you do start writing, specifically look at what you're writing, know who your contemporary authors are. Um, I was writing, I'm a history major, I love history, I grew up in Seattle, so in my mind it wasn't a thing that I was contemporary or history, I was just sort of writing an era that I really loved and, and I felt a vibe with. I used to work in tourism in Seattle, so I was very aware of the history of Seattle. So to me it was just a very natural setting. And um, it was silly of me in hindsight that, that I'd never realized that. So it was just my lack of familiarity with even where I landed 
as a genre with other authors and things like that I'm, you know, not hardcore, I'm soft boiled and these kinds of things. So that would be my other chunk of advice to myself is, is learn the industry and then really, really understand specifically your genre, who your contemporaries are and where exactly you fit specifically with what you do. Yeah, those are very good points and they sort of could dovetail together nicely. And, um, but you're not alone in that because I did the same <laughs> I did the same exact thing because I wrote I wrote um, my series is the red carpet catering mysteries, but they were originally not called that. My publisher named them, and um, actually, I, I they went. So the story was I sent them this book, and I thought I was writing a book about movies because I used mm. to work at um, I used to cook behind the scenes on movie sets with my sister. Um, we just you know we I worked she worked she did that a hundred percent that was her job and I would go and help her. But then I did end up working on a movie full time at the end of that before I became a mother and I couldn't do that kind of work anymore because it's too hard. But um, mm-hmm. I thought I was writing a book about movie sets and people and actors, and things, but my character was the chef. So I gave uh, this, you know, the publisher came, oh, we love it, we love it, we love it. But we think we're miss- we're really missing, we're missing the market because it's, we should really market this as a culinary mystery. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, it is culinary mystery. <laughs> I didn't think about it. Like, duh. So, so she's like, what would you call it? And I said, well, her name of her company is Red Carpet Catering. I don't know. None of it ever occurred to me that I was writing culinary right. mystery. I just, I missed, I totally missed the boat. And uh, so they rebranded it as culinary, but I mean, it hadn't been published or anything. So they, this was all in the talks, but I just felt like such an idiot. Like, I'm like oh, well, thank you for having a brain and telling me what I should be doing. Cause I have no idea. And culinary mysteries are hugely popular. Yeah. And I read them and I, you know, I, Catherine Hall Page is one of my favorite authors of all time and I'm friends with her and she writes about a caterer. I'm like, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I don't know what was happening, but I didn't figure it out until they told it to me. And I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Thank you for um, being smart. So that, <laughs> that was a good, that's a very good point. But I think also, you know, don't, don't, um, stutter yourself too much and trying to fit yourself into it like you know write freely but also kind of know the market you're you're speaking to so that's that those are the that's a the, the fine point that you're trying to the sweet spot you're trying to find there mm-hmm. you know because you want to be yeah. not you know derivative of everything else that's out there but you know you want to do your own thing but also you'd have to you have to be able to sell it and that's you do if that's your intention if you're not just writing for yourself but you're writing for the commercial industry yeah and if you really if I don't know if I went to write a project and couldn't find anywhere that it fit, if I couldn't find a way to explain it to other people in the industry so that they understood what I'd written, it would be a real question for me of if I'd even written something that had commercial viability or, you know, have I done something that's so entirely unique? It's literary, but might not have a home. Yeah. And I've I've been on the other end of the table. Um, People, I'll be at a convention or, you know, I've been invited to different functions where I sit and listen to people pitch all day. And Mm -hmm. some people sit and talk to me about their books and they sound fascinating, but they can't quite put their finger on what it actually is. And as a, as a, I worked in marketing for a very long time, but I also managed a large bookstore. I've worked at every single bookstore they have, all the chain bookstores I've worked Mm -hmm. in at one point or another in my life, but I managed um, a Borders for a while. And um, so my question to them would be like, where I'm working in the bookstore, where am I going to shelve this book? Who, who, who are the authors next to your book? So I know where to find it in the store. And if you can't tell me that, then I don't think you know what you're doing. You know, I don't think you, how am I supposed to, as a publisher, supposed to sell this book? Like, how am I supposed to market this? Because I don't even know what it is. You don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. And that doesn't mean that it isn't good or doesn't, you know, it could be the most amazing book ever. But if it doesn't have a place where people know how to handle it in a commercial market, you're going to have a hard time knowing what to do with it. Exactly that's the point and you want to be creative and do whatever you want to do but there has Mm -hmm. to be 
it has to be something people are able to understand only because people are afraid of the unknown <laughs> and they're not going to buy some unknown thing. They're like, well, what is it? Why am I spending $25 for this thing? You know, that I don't know what it is. So that's the, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting concept. Thank you for, you're just, you're very business-like in your pro process here. Oh, once I learned I had to take it seriously. <laughs> yeah. Once you really figured out that you were in culinary mystery and historical mysteries. Right. 1950s. Yeah. I mean, it's not a gray area. It's definitely a long time ago. Um, so which comes first for you, your plot or your characters? Oh, I would say the, well, the plot literally comes first. Um, I always think of the plot first. I always, when I have the idea for a story, it's always the plot first. And then I kind of reverse engineer it to what, which characters are needed to make that plot happen. So literally the plot comes first, but in order of importance, I mean, I'd never be so silly as to say that characters aren't paramount. Of course they are. Um, and if, if you were going to have to be weak on either, you're going to have to, if, it, if push came to shove, I would say the characters have to outrank the plot. Um, I would say in my books, however, the plot does come first because the nature of the genre and what I write. Now, now here, I consider that what I write is traditional um, murder mysteries, although I've heard that word used a couple different ways. So if you, if you use it another way, I'd like to hear um, the other definitions. But I would consider it traditional in the sense that it's um, fair play and it's more of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you have the clues, you could solve it, but you've been distracted with red herrings or you're, you're trying to solve it um, and maybe sort of beat, you're playing a game, you're trying to beat the detective or beat the sleuth to the end, but you're gonna find out who did it in the end. You know it was one of these people, you know you're gonna find out who did it in the end and some sort of justice is going to be served and it's gonna be a pretty happy ending for everybody who deserves it, who didn't get murdered. Yeah. So that's kind of what I consider to be traditional. Um, so, so I would say that in the case of a traditional mystery plot is the most important because it's all about that puzzle. If that puzzle doesn't work, if that puzzle is not the right balance of believable and intricate and engaging enough, it almost doesn't matter how great your characters are. You have to have, to be a traditional mystery, you have to have that fabulous twisty turny plot that is fair and engaging. I agree. So yeah. I, I have to say plot goes first and that's notice to characters because you got to have great characters. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, it's great to have both, you know, if you can, but like you were mm -hmm. saying, I think, especially for you and the books that you write, which are, you know, the one that I've read so far is wonderful. And it is, mm -hmm. it does harken back to the golden age mysteries, you know, the traditional mysteries. Right. Like which Christie. were not historical when they are written. See, that's how I, that's how I got to my logical fallacy there. <laughs> Right. You're going, backwards. Yeah, you're going backwards and forwards in time in your mind, but <laughs> right. we are living in 2021 at the moment and it, there's a pandemic. So just so you know, that's what's happening today. <laughs> Maybe I'd rather go back. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> Many a time have I said, oh, that would be so much easier. And, eh, and so <laughs> but yes, you and you were saying that you do, you've done tourism and um, Seattle and and that all, all of that comes through in your history, you know, your your uh, knowledge of history and all that, that all comes through. So that is totally directed to the plot because you feel like you're walking down those rainy streets when you read it. And it's just, you know, mm -hmm. you really bring that forward. And, but your characters are all well-rounded well and memorable as well. So 
I think the, the, I hear it. <laughs> yeah, the, the good, the, the goal is to have, because you're building this wonderful set piece, but you don't want to have like wooden stick figures walking around in it. So you have to sort right. of blend them through it and that, you know, but yeah, you do a good job, but you, you make a fair point about the, the plot having to be the thing when you're doing, writing this kind of mystery. My, mm-hmm. my publisher always, um, they seem to want to make it mine real cozy and the covers are pretty cozy looking and, and there's nothing wrong, you know, but I don't think mine are really that cozy. So like right. there's, they're not hilarious or there's no funny ants coming in and telling them, you know, what to do <laughs> or cats running around. I don't have any of that. And, um, I, you know, I have like drug abuse and more harder edge kind of topics in mine. And, you know, I was like, yeah, it doesn't quite sound cozy. <laughs> yeah. So I was wondering if I was like, did I disappoint people? I hope not, but at least I figured out it was culinary. So that's good. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think people are more interested in the culinary feature as long as you don't completely deceive them and have it be very hardcore and raw. I think that would be a big violation. But, you know, some of the rules for cozy, I've heard things like you can't have more than two murders and, you know, these really specific things. I think I think fans are pretty forgiving if something's in the ballpark of what they expected. Yeah, exactly. That just reminded me I was talking to we have a huge family. One of our great uncles, I was saying I was talking about Midsummer Murders. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he talks real loud, you know, because nobody can hear anything either. And he said, isn't that the one where three people die in every episode? <laughs> I said, I think so. Now that you've said that, now I can't, now I have to watch them all and be like, oh yeah, there are three people that die in this episode. And on the third one, they figure it out. So he just ruined that whole form because I was blissfully going along like, oh yeah, there are three people in every episode. That die. In the early ones, at least, I don't know. <clears throat> I'm only back. I'm not current day with that show. So next question for you, how do you develop the voices of your characters? Do you keep a Bible or use some other methods to bring your characters to life for us? Mm, I, hmm, I wouldn't say I don't keep a Bible. Um, and I don't, I, I, I wouldn't describe it as bringing the characters to life. It's more because I, I work the plot in reverse in order to have the plot that I want. So I start with the twist, the thing, the distraction, the big thing at the end that made people not see. Um, because I start with that and then you work it backwards, you say, okay, you're going to need to have about so many characters and the nature of the twist sort of defines what kind of characters you're going to have. It defines if you're going to have, um, adults who know each other, people who are strangers, uh, their socioeconomic status. Do they live in the city or the country or, you know, this kind of thing. So this is sort of defined to a large extent by the twist. And so I sort of know the group of people who I need, but it's more like, it's more like casting um, actors for a play or a movie. So then I say, okay, and I, I want a nice balance. I want a mix of characters who are likable and characters who are not likable. So there's, there's one character in Charlatan and I don't like him at all, but I love to not like him. He's a very likable, unlikable character. He's kind of a, a playboy. He's a little bit full of himself. He's the life of the party. You would never want to go on a date with this guy. Well, maybe one date, but you'd never want to go out with him again, but he'd be great at a barbecue, you know? And so, and I knew I needed that kind of a character to contrast his sibling, who was a very uh, tame and low key. And in many ways to bring out the juxtaposition between the two of them. And so the one kind of defined the other. And then um, there was also a situation where somebody was a very obvious, it's the one you're going to think of, this is the person who had all the reason in the world, motive and opportunity and the guts to have done the crime. 
well, then I can't have the other characters with that same personality. The other characters have to be people who either, you know, had the guts but didn't have the motive or had the motive but would never do a thing like that. Or would they? And so once I came up with the characteristics of what I needed to make that plot work, um, then it's just sort of filling it in. And then you're, you're just kind of balancing out the right character. So the characters sort of come out of necessity. Um, and as far as them having voices, I've never thought too much about it. I, when I'm working through the scene, I'm a big plotter and I, I plot a lot. And I have every scene set up. I know what's going to be revealed, what red herrings, what has to develop in every scene, who's there, where it takes place. And so very often when, when I sit down to write a scene, I say, okay, I've got these characters, they're in this location, this much has happened, and here's the information that needs to be relayed and kind of the surprise fun things that are going to happen. And it's going to end with this little bit of a, a hook at the end. And so then you kind of let your people talk and you take down the dictation of what those characters would say in that setting. Yeah, and they kind of have their own voice. If somebody, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer than that. They have their own voice that's because very, they have to be the character to fulfill that role. Yeah, no, that's a very good answer. And it was very um, academic sounding, like you've, th you've really thought about it. So that was very, no, that's a great answer. And it's, but you, like, you're very plot driven and very set, you know, that's, we've, we've sort of talked about that a lot. So that's, you know, that's mm -hmm. the reason, but your characters do are very distinctive. So you do, it's probably just like, if you're doing it sublimal, subliminally, I can never say that word. I don't know why I try to say it because I can't say it. I skip it and I say subconscious. People right. usually kind of let you get away with either. Right. And then you don't have to say that, that one that you can't say so, and I can't either. Yeah, even if I do it slow, I still mess it up. So I can't say roll either, like rural, like living in a- Oh, like, that's yeah. a bad one. I can't say mm -hmm. that. Anyway, I think you're doing it subconsciously, subliminally. <laughs> yeah, I, I might be. Yeah. It, Cause it does come through even you're probably just not focusing on it. Probably not. I mean, and that's it. I guess I do. You asked me about a Bible. I do keep track. Once I've decided who they are, I do write down their key, their physical features. If they wear glasses or have a mustache or, and how old they are. I do write down those key fe features. Otherwise I'll just be um, inconsistent and later I'll switch something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. You do have to keep track of those key points. Cause it is there. Somebody will call you on it because uh, my mm -hmm. one character has the shellfish allergy, which is revealed in the first book. And it's part of, it's one of the ways somebody tries to offer. Uh -huh. And um, then like several books later, my chef brings home like crab dip from the restaurant <laughs> puts it in the refrigerator and I'm like, Oh my God, how, what an inconsiderate roommate that she would bring home crabs. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's extremely considerate. She's, yeah. Sorry. Or I'm forgetful. One or the other. Yeah. <laughs> she was just being a bee that day. She didn't feel yeah. like being nice. <laughs> no, that was my mistake. Sorry, I forgot. Um, but I didn't forget after that. I never, I just never wrote about fish again. I was like, that's it. No more fish in the books because uh, I don't want to get blasted on Amazon. <laughs> They'll get you. They will come for you. In a nice loving way, I think. Anyway, yes, whatever. Usually. Yes, I'm sure it's out of love. What is the most difficult part of the creative writing process for you? And what is the easiest part? Mm. I don't know that I, the, the easiest part is definitely the polishing at the end. Um, the most difficult part would be because, because I plot things out so much. Um, and when I say, I mean, I, I have probably between, well, about 15,000 words of outline before I start writing. 
So I really, when I say I do it a lot, I just want to give people, because I'm sure somebody does it more than me, somebody does it less, but that's about what I'm talking about. I mean, I have, I have a proper packet of outline before I start. Mm. Um, and a lot of that is because it's historical, because I'm keeping track of things like the day of the week and things like this. I, I made a mistake with one of my previous books where I wrote a story and I forget what the event was, but there was a major, major uh, political event that happened on a certain day and I made no mention of it. And you just, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. it, somebody would have said something, it would have been on the paper. I mean, really you can use it. It's a nice tool to help place it in the time to mention the newspaper or something, if, if you can work it in. Um, and so once I caught myself there, I said, okay, I can't do this anymore. So whether I list the actual days or not, I know what day they happened. I know yeah. exactly which day. So I know if Sputnik was going on or I know who the president was and I know any big things like that. Like I've looked at it all to make sure that it works. And then I had to pay attention with days of the week. Otherwise I would do silly things like, you know, having someone with an office job at home in the middle of the day on a Wednesday <laughs> <laughs> or, or I'd have too many work days in a row. I'd have, you know, six work days in a row and it didn't make sense or things like that. So, um, so I know what all my days are and any political events. And then I thought, well, gosh, as long as I'm doing this, I should just check the almanac, especially since my series takes place in Seattle and the weather is a thing. I can't have people just outside meeting on the street, you know, at a cafe every time they want to have a little encounter. I, I need to account for the season and the weather. It's a thing. Um, so because I started tracking that much of it, so that's the most fun part. The most fun part is doing the blocking because it's just, it's like getting ready to, I don't know, write a play. I figure out my characters and I put them in order and my clues and I get it all set. And it's just sort of this fun organizing process. The first draft is a bit of a, it can be hard because I catch everything I didn't catch. But the worst part, because that's what you asked me, the worst part is after I've written the first draft, so maybe I'm at 30 or 50,000 words, something like it's, it's a pretty big chunk at this point. And I've stuck to my outline, so it's pretty good. But then I go through and I look at it and I double check my outline and I read it. And I have a little checklist that I go through. And it's things like continuity. So for each character, do their motives make sense? Is their behavior still online? Are their actions still matching? Or are they doing something funky? Um, and so I have, I have several things like that that I've just checked plot-wise to make sure the plot really is churning like it's supposed to. So kind of a step back in the big picture. That's the hardest part. That is the worst part because at that point I've written such an unwieldy beast. It's really obnoxious to change. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but it's really the last stage that I can do any heavy lifting without having to rework everything. So I hate that part the most. It's after the first draft when I really have to, and I, I shelve it. I set it aside for several weeks, come back, look at it. I look back at my outline, how things were supposed to be in, in concept. The big picture arch is what I'm talking about here because the pieces are all fine. But did the pieces do what I thought they were going to do? Did they really perform or are they chunky? And usually what I'll find is something like two or three chapters in a row where really nothing that interesting happens. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it's solvable, but you really have to tackle that. You can't ignore that. Um, so that's the worst part. I have to sit there. I have to look at it honestly. Everything with all my beautiful planning that just didn't work, that I really have to deal with. Very messy. It's the most embarrassing mistakes. All of my worst, dumbest mistakes are there. And I have to fix all of those buggers. And that can take forever. It can, I mean, yeah, not weeks. That always feels like it takes just months and months to go through and tackle that and to really wield it into something that is still very raw and basic, but holds its own. Where I can look at it and say, okay, this, then if I give it one more draft, 
I'm at least willing to share it with like my best friend at that point. Like it's, it's not polished, it's not beautiful, but it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. It has a beginning and middle and an end. Yeah. Then I feel like I have, I have a book to work with, but yeah, it's that middle part where I've just made all of those big mistakes and I have to go back to the drawing board. You know, that's where I've cut characters. I've cut chapters. Um, yeah. Yeah. At that stage for the Charlotte and murders, the one that was just published at that point, I went and cut 30,000 words from the beginning mm. wow. at that stage. It was, you know, and I just looked at it and I was like, what is all this stuff? I just, I had a ridiculous amount of lead up. It was so not required. What was this? A 1950s movie? <laughs> you know, where the murder is going to happen at the very end. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's my brutal moment of, of truth. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're able to do that because some people are not. And uh, they, you know, the whole kill your darlings thing is just, Every word is sacred to some people. And it's just really hard to have that self-evaluation. And I think that's really cool that you have that. I I want my books to sell. (laughs) At the end of the day, I'm writing a good book. If I were writing it for myself, you know, that's what, I don't know, maybe personal writing would be if I, if I kept a journal or did poetry or something just for me, then I could be sacred about every word, but this is a business and I'm trying to write a book that the readers are going to enjoy and love. That's, At the end of the day, that's what I want. I want someone to read it and to have loved it. Well, there you go. And I, well, I did. So you got one for sure. Yay, you. <laughs> that's what my husband said when I wrote my first. He's like, well, I'm going to like it and you'll like it and our moms will like it. So there's four people right there. It's <laughs> like, okay, so, yeah, sold for people. That's cool. But it feels better than just one person. At least four is good. Yeah. For my fifth question, I always ask something a little bit off the wall. Yeah. And um, I'm going to ask you one that I haven't asked anyone else because nobody, uh, I don't know why um if you could and I have to hear the answer to this if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life what would it be are you gonna say sauerkraut no 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 that's a good guess and in all in all honesty I love sauerkraut I love like good warm lovely slightly buttery with a white wine yes I do love sauerkraut no it would be and I contemplated this because I thought spaghetti at first but I think it would be beans and rice black beans, brown rice, and then a really nice pico de gallo or a good fresh, fresh salsa with lots of avocado, like a lot of avocado, a little bit of garlic salt. I, I really think I could, I could eat that three meals a day for the rest of my life. Wow. That's good. I, I might have that for dinner because that's oh my gosh, delicious. It's so good. And it's so easy to throw together. I mean, you have to, avocados have to be in season, but when they're in season, it is the best. Mm-hmm. When I go to the store, the avocados are hard as baseballs or like on death's door. So you always have to get those ones are like in the middle if you want them that day. But they, my store is really cool because they have them left to right, depending on your needs. Oh, right there? Yeah. So they have like not ready yet. Oh, okay for today. And then, you know, almost gone. So just, you know, if you were making like guacamole, you could grab the one almost gone ones because they're so soft, you know. But yes. That's funny. And you know, you can take, you can put them in a paper bag with bananas, right? Mm-hmm. Ripen yeah. them up. Yeah. My store has the paper bags there for you too, to grab. So they're really, they've thought of everything. I like your store. Yeah. Wegmans. Do you have to go like 50 miles to a grocery store or do you have things? No, um, we are very, very remote, but we're very remote by German standards. So, I mean, the whole country is, I think the size of Montana. Um, So we have, I have about a 12 minute drive to my nearest grocery store. That's not bad. No, it's not too bad. It's but everybody else lives in a village. Everybody else has like a beer garden down the road or a library or a restaurant, a cafe, something. And I really I've got beautiful cows 
They're not mine, but I get to admire them. Mm-hmm. Got some sheep, rabbits, hawks overhead. I mean, it's it's very lovely, um, but it's remote. <laughs> yeah, it is the country life I never knew I I loved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a city girl, so that would be. But if you can get always, to a store in 12 minutes, that's not that bad. It's it's not too bad. It isn't too bad. Um, yeah, if, depending on how long we stay here, there is a chance that we'll pack up and move to the city before the end of, of winter. <laughs> well, it is nice if you just want to go to a wine bar and not have to, is Uber, Uber a thing? Because it seems like Uber would like, everyone would be Ubering there because Uber is sort of a German sounding word. <laughs> here, I'm not sure. You know, I, if I remember correctly, it was illegal at first because of uh, taxi driver's rights and things like that. But I recently, I think it has been allowed. Mm-hmm. So I believe it is here. Cool. But I'm not sure. But there are taxis. Yeah. But yeah, but we are we don't even have a bus. We don't even have public transportation where we are. So I mean, by German standards, it is very remote. <laughs> We're off the grid. Also, also by my standards. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I've always had a I like to have a sidewalk outside. Like I walk out my house, I have a sidewalk, and then half a mile, you know, I'm downtown with getting coffee. And that's just yeah. what I prefer. Yeah, that's kind of what I was used to, too, in Southern California. Um, we lived in a small town north of San Diego. And yeah, I mean, we were probably a mile or two from things, but we had all of the amenities right there. And you could walk through the neighborhood. There were sidewalks and other people and things like this. And yeah. here it is beautifully remote. So there's there's tractors. And every now and then a, a cow got out of its um, enclosure. It wasn't a fence, but, you know, one of those uh, things that encloses it. And it started following me home one day. I didn't know. Are you supposed to be afraid of cows? It was kind of friendly. <laughs> no, they're, they're nice. Actually. My okay, mom, good. yeah, my mom lives, um, in a couple acres about 20 minutes from me and she's in a more, you know, country part of this mm-hmm. area. And she's, there's a farm behind her. It's always been there. We moved to this area, um, in 86. So we grew up in the farm, you know, we were, I was in high school, yeah. but there were cows behind our house and the farmer did not live on that farm. He lived down the road. And his cows, we would come home from like work and school and stuff. And there'd be a cow in our backyard um, near our swimming pool. We had a pool. And so he's like hanging out by the pool, you know. And um, so my mama called the farmer. And every single time she would say, hey, one of your cows um, is in our yard. You know, she didn't care. She was like letting you know, like, here, I don't know what to do. Can you come get it? We're from the city. And uh, he's like, well, which one is it? <laughs> I'm like, what, what does it matter? <laughs> Who cares which one it is? <laughs> like it's the smart one it's the one that knows how to get out I don't know whatever his name is swimming yeah it's the one that knows where the whole of the fence is so he would have to come and he was this really old guy he was really nice but he would get his cow and then he would like have to you know you stand out there and talk to you for like half an hour about the cow and uh, we were just not we're like from Miami and um Fort Lauderdale Miami area and we're just we were just not used to country talking for an half an hour on the point you know anyway it's just really it was very culture shocky for us for a while but yeah right cows are friendly they're really nice good I'm they glad got a lot of them they keep getting out yes they will and they come find you and then they leave big poops in your yard so look forward to that just watch free stuff <laughs> cow flop poop yeah uh, I need a, I need an espresso <laughs> so, yeah it's still early for you isn't it yes it is it's, it's just now noon it's just gone noon so we're uh halfway through the day I'm that much closer to happy hour <laughs> which is always on my horizon okay so the final quiz is something that we continue to do because I find it I find it fun um so I'm just going to ask you you can answer any way you like of course okay you would be able to do that anyway it doesn't matter when it doesn't have to be this you can answer anything Your you want confidence in me is high okay yes 
extremely high. <laughs> you're quite, you're quite intelligent. Beach or mountains? Ooh, Pacific Northwest beach. Otherwise, probably the mountains. Okay. Cake or pie? Ooh, berry pie, definitely. If it's a custard or a cream, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, I'm with you. And definitely not cow pies. But you'll find <laughs> out. You'll find out. You'll see. Morning person or night owl? Oh, probably neither. Probably morning if I have to be something. Middle of the day after nine hours of sleep. <laughs> okay. I'm finding that you're like a bit, you're in the middle of, of a lot of these. So that's good. Oh, I think I might know this one. Dogs or cats? Oh, dogs. Definitely. The bigger, the better. Big dogs. What kind of dogs did you say you had? An Appenzeller Sennenhund. Okay. I won't be saying that either. I won't be using that word. It's kind of like subliminal <laughs> for me. I won't be saying that name of that dog either. We can all look it up. We can Google it. Um, mm -hmm. Coffee or coffee or tea? Ooh, coffee. Definitely. They have good coffee in Germany. They have great coffee in Germany. Yeah. They have, they have fabulous coffee. That's good. Their, and bad. their coffee is, they take their coffee seriously. Oh, well, it was especially where we are. We're in the South. So we're close to um, Austria and Italy. So there's good coffee. Nice. Well, mm -hmm. be coming from Seattle, I would think you'd have high standards for coffee. I like to think I have high standards, but I don't really know. <laughs> I think you do. Tully's is better than Starbucks. <laughs> yes. Well, I think it's just, in, yeah, I think it's ingrained like this, like the character development. It's in, you just, you just think you just automatically are that way. You just, <laughs> you know, good coffee from bad coffee. So, well, what's up next for you? You've just made a huge life change. Are you writing? What's going on? I am writing. I am working on my second series. So I've just finished. I've got the three books with Level Best and I'm working on a new series, The Jazz Club Mysteries. That one is set in the 1940s in San Diego. Stick to what you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on that series. There's going to be at least four parts to that four seasons of one year. Um, and then I'm working on a, a separate project, which I have completely outlined, but have not quite started writing yet. I'm still in the fun phase. Um, and I don't know how to categorize it yet. It's a little bit of, oh, I'm not quite sure. It's definitely contemporary. It's um, chiclet. It's, it's different altogether. I'm not even sure if it's going to be a legitimate mystery. We'll see how it turns out. Maybe it'll end up on the shelf with my my middle grade sci-fi book, but it'll be a fun process. I'm going to try it out. <laughs> All right. Well, when you're done writing it, just go back and listen to this podcast again and listen to what I said about where does it go on the shelf in the bookstore. <laughs> I still have to figure out where it would go on the shelf. <laughs> you'll get there. You'll be fine. Well, that's, that sounds very cool. And, you know, it seems like your new place, your new house, your new surroundings, it's, it's sort of really conducive to writing. It's not a lot of distractions. It is very peaceful and quiet. Yes. So that's it good. is. It is lovely. It's peaceful here. And yeah, I feel very lucky and very happy to be here. Good. Well, we're happy for you. But Thank um, you. You, we have to come. I just have to come to Germany and see you. So that'll be absolutely. I yeah, I, I will be here. And I travel well, so I can meet you wherever you are. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I have family that just moved over and uh, we're planning some visits. So we'll, uh, we'll hook up when we get there. Yeah, that would be great. For sure. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You've, you've been lovely to chat to, and um, it's been really fun working with you so far. Thank and, you. Um, I have enjoyed working with Level Best. Yay. Good. Well, that's the, that's the goal. So we'll have a good rest of the day and uh, say hi to your cows for me. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you. Will do. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sean. Have a great day. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.